Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Remember, kids, we're what you call experts. Don't try this at home. Hey, it's me, your exploding toilet bruiser, Holden McNeely. How's it going, everybody? Ah, I got a bunch of shit in me. Oh, God, now I'm in a bunch of pieces. What's happening here? It's the Mythbusters episode. On this exciting episode of Wizard and the Bruiser, our intrepid hosts see if they can summarize the 2000s most iconic sci-fi infotainment show and not go into an existential hole about uh, how the 2000s represented the last moment of American idealist <laughs> that's right but it's true welcome to our Mythbusters episode of course we had to do this at some point this is like another one of those time is strange you know mm-hmm. um you'll grow up being told one thing hey if you do this you're a nerd if you if you act like this you're you're not uh, people don't like you people don't like enthusiasm about <laughs> things like anything much less science or uh problem solving or you know taking things apart and putting them back together again that makes you a nerd and 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 no one no one likes you nerds and then you you get out of high school and you go to college and you were you know you're like oh, I'm not even into that nerd stuff I'm I'm cool I listen to jazz music and I smoke jazz weed and you know what I mean I do all that kind of stuff and and uh yeah I'm one of those cool guys you know what I mean and then and then you get out of college and and you look around and all of a sudden everyone's like nerds are cool now <laughs> and you're like what what are you talking about I thought we were like super not cool oh I can be it's wait I'm a nerd and they're like no you're not you're one of those cool guys you listen to jazz music and smoke that jazz weed and I'm like wait 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 a second I I'm cool I I, I you know I like all that kind of stuff and um you know that that was like nerdist and you know just in the MCU and and, and all those things and Mythbusters, I think is such a big part of that wave right where like finally it was not just like acceptable but kind of cool to be like excited about like science stuff and you know you could be this like i'm a big old glasses wearing bearded nerd boy with a silly hat that uh loves you know blowing stuff up and and it's celebrated in this amazing way i think i think mythbusters was like 
doing that. Mythbusters was the hipster of cool nerds. They were like doing that before it was even a big deal. I mean, the show started in 2003. I was still in college and nerds were still nerds. You know what I mean? But over time, it it became this phenomenon and this widely, not just, uh, again, not just acceptable, but like super cool thing that everybody was watching together and, and uh, was unified in liking and became this like, uh, you know, memeable thing online and, and people love support these big old nerds and it's kind of blows me away and i i love it for that i was the target audience of mythbusters when it came out i loved this show profoundly uh and it was exactly in my wheelhouse and we know we're talking 2003 we're talking 2004 i'm also in college i'm downloading episodes of one piece and naruto on kazaa on my college network i uh am going on Dig and Reddit and like actively engaging with atheism memes. Like that was a bold new thing that was exciting. Um, companies like Facebook were uh, kind of coming into their own and the web 2.0 was expanding and it was these cool startups that were uh, disrupting everything. And it was all based out of Silicon Valley. It was just all of this idealism uh, and excitement in the nerd community, and it hadn't been subsumed yet. And Mythbusters was 100% the front row of that cultural movement because, you know, these were people that worked at uh, worked on Star Wars movies for ILM. These are people that, like, went ahead and made a bunch of, like, internet references in the middle of the show. And what really made the show compelling for me was that it married... Uh, the kind of Bill Nye the Science Guy, Mr. Wizard, Beekman's World style science edutainment with a more raw reality TV based kind of uh, uh, format. You know, it was it wasn't just like, hey, did you know that if you mix vinegar with baking soda, it goes fizzy like uh -huh. this was explosions and violence and. There was a redhead girl who was super cute. Who <laughs> was super cute. The, uh, you know, our, our main, our, our hosts were constantly injuring themselves. They were constantly injuring others, as we'll get into. It was, uh, it was the real world. It was jackass. It was yeah. uh, Beekman's world all rolled into one. Yeah. And the point of the show was this procedural process of uh, a scientific method from beginning to end. And in the case of most of these episodes, multiple ones all at once. So, like, it wasn't about uh, messy human emotions. It wasn't about, like, characters being like, oh, I wish I could tell Gwendola how I feel. Like, for a nerd who was, like, scared of the world, who was scared of everything, the Mythbusters TV program was a source of, like, consistency and excitement hosted by a group of friends that you felt that you could be friends with, uh -huh. even though, as we'll get into multiple times, Adam and Jamie <laughs> were not friends. They were no. not friends at all. <laughs> the sheer accidentalness of this show and the the way that it became a cultural phenomenon out of like thin air, where just one weird uh, instant led to another, led to another, and snowballed to this group of like weird uh, builders and makers becoming these media darlings yeah is a fascinating story and one that i uh didn't know before we did the research and it really made me appreciate just what this show represented and you know uh it, it feels like there's a million 
versions of this show that they've done since. Uh, I know uh-huh. Tori, uh, Carrie, and uh, Grant Imahara did uh, something for Netflix called The White Rabbit. The White Rabbit Project, yeah. There was like the slow-mo time. There's all these like attempts to recapture that magic. And it never quite worked out, although the legacy of Mythbusters is 100% alive and well on YouTube. There's creators like Mark Rober and the Backyard Scientists and Niall mm-hmm. Red, who all have millions and millions of viewers, like millions of subs, probably dwarfing by an exponential factor the original cable audience of Mythbusters, doing this same kind of procedural like, hey... We're going to build a thing. These are the scientific forces involved in building the thing. And we're going to end on a fancy slow-mo shot of it exploding. Um, And so it's it's this kind of weird niche of media, this science-tainment niche that Mythbusters embodies that I find fascinating. And one of the things that I love the most about this show are the moments where even they're surprised at what's happening, where they can actually get a balloon made of lead to fly. When they shoot a cannon at 50 miles per hour out of the back of a truck that is also going 50 miles per hour and the ball just stops in midair because that's how physics works, even though you don't think that's how it should work. Yeah. It's just incredibly satisfying when things explode. It's incredibly interesting when scientific principles you get to see in motion in HD for uh, in front of your eyes. And it's charming that this, you know, weird guy from Indiana in a beret and his former child actor clown friend uh, get to just engage with the kind of things that, you know, they'll do tests based on YouTube videos and Reddit posts and interact with the audience in a way that makes them way more available than a lot of other celebrities. Uh, If you weren't there for it, I don't know if watching an episode now still has the sway that it did when I needed a show like Mythbusters. But dear God, going through the episodes and watching hour after hour after hour of this show was a weirdly nostalgic comfort. Also terrifying because I was, I feel like, (laughs) at my most depressed when Mythbusters was on. I mean, it's a good show for that. And I was also going to say it's a great, because it is that great show that can just be on all Mm -hmm. day. Like, you can just, in the family living room, in the middle of a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, perfect show. Whole family can be in and out of it. You know, it's uh, it's great for that and great for depression watching because it's just constant... You know, stimuli, constant, just comfort food Mm -hmm. TV. And there's, oh my God, so many hours of it as well. I mean, they, damn, did they bust some fucking myths, dude. This show ran from 2003 to, um, for almost 300 episodes and 17 seasons. It finally officially ended, I believe, in 2018. Um, There was like one season with new hosts that were picked from a uh, reality TV competition. We'll get into that. But, um, Man, I mean, they put so much time and work into that thing. It's like kind of unbelievable. And there's just an endless amount of it at this point. And again, like I said, I briefly mentioned before, but such a great show for like, here's a crazy clip <laughs> for Reddit right now that would just play really well for an internet audience as well for, you know, th- so it's just kind of undeniable in that way. I'm glad we're finally doing an episode on it. Because again, I love like, 
cool nerd stuff. And it's like, not like they act cool. They act incredibly nerdy. Mm -hmm. And it was somehow just the way it was put out and the way it was done was just, they were cool. And I like admire that and so much because I hid the nerdiness aspects of myself for a while there in my life, you know? And and, um, so I admire people like this, uh, people who make it cool. Uh, So Mythbusters, yeah, science entertainment television program developed by Peter Rees, which premiered on Discovery Channel. The host special effects experts Adam Savage and Jamie Heineman and the B team behind them use the scientific method to test out myths, movie scenes, adages, and more to see how they hold up. So a lot of it too... We're about to get into the nitty gritty, but I'll just really quickly say a lot of it too is exploring myths based on Hollywood, based on television and film. And a lot of these guys worked at Industrial Light and Magic. They worked on a bunch of movies and things like that. So it's a lot of fun. And again, I think that the application to action movies and things like that, again, is just makes it so entertaining as opposed to just like Bill Nye in the lab, right? Mm-hmm. Which was also entertaining to a certain degree, but you know what I mean? It was just, it's, it's a lot cooler when it's like, remember that fucked thing that happened in Armageddon? <laughs> Let's see if that holds up at all, you know? One myth that I remember was uh, they just did a whole episode about whether or not you can actually curve bullets by swinging your arm while you fire the gun like in the movie Wanted. <laughs> Yes, love it. And I'm just yeah, like, exactly. yeah, yeah, would, would that work? Let's find out. It doesn't. It doesn't at all. Sometimes it does. You know, in that case, no. But yeah, a lot of times you're like, whoa, I can't believe that. Like um, if you could jump into um, a pool of water to avoid the blast of a shockwave. Oh, yeah. Uh, which actually did work. And that's kind of a, t- such a TV thing that you would totally think would be like, well, that's probably bullshit. If you're falling off a high like structure into water... Could you throw your like tools or whatever you have on you to break the surface tension of the water before you hit it? And that'll like stop you from snapping your neck. Maybe. <laughs> One thing I actually remember that actually that sticks with me to today is they did a myth of uh, if you're if you drive your car, it's the water myths that are actually weirdly stick with me. Yeah. <laughs> if you are getting shot at, you should dive into water because a handgun bullet at the very least will actually break apart upon hitting the water because of the difference in density. If your car drives into a lake, don't wear yourself out trying to struggle because the pressure differential will keep the door shut. What you have to do is just stay calm, wait until the cabin floods, and then the pressure will differentiate and the door will open uh, normally. So, like, that's, like, a weird thing I learned off of Mythbusters. And a woman actually claims that that episode of Mythbusters saved her and her daughter's life when that happened to her. And she remembered the advice from the show. That's amazing. All right, here we go. Let's get into it. The early history. It came about in a pretty interesting way. First of all, we've got Peter Rees, I mentioned before. He is an Australian writer and producer. Um... Back in 1993, he won the Charles Heidseck International uh, Travel Challenge for circumnavigating the globe by land and sea in 100 days and turned that into a documentary called Champagne Charlie. And I like that we start here with this crazy thing, circumnavigating the globe in 100 days, because he, along with the rest of this crew... A lot of them have like these really interesting. They're like world travelers. Mm-hmm. They they are rebels and renegades in a lot of ways, and uh, it's just really fascinating that this crew is so ragtag. Like not not many of them were like, oh, they were just this like 
cute, pretty looking actor, and they ended up becoming this like avid science person. In fact, none of them really have that background, right? They're all like kind of have these weird entries into Hollywood that brought them to Mythbusters. Before Peter Reese did that, he graduated uh, the Circumnavigating the Globe. He graduated from the Australian Film, Television, and Radio School. Initially, the series Reese pitched to the Discovery Channel was called Tall Tales or True. And this actually focused on exploring urban myths and legends. So similar, but not exactly the same. However, Discovery had already greenlit a similar concept. So that is what forced him to go and refine his pitch to focus on key elements of myths and the use of science to debunk or prove them and applied it more to like films and things like that and television shows and expanded outside of urban legends in the realm of of those things and yeah so the discovery then gave him the go-ahead to develop three episodes as a pilot project so he needs to now gather the people to make it happen so it's interesting that reese worked for a company called beyond productions and beyond is was this incredibly long-running australian kind of science news magazine show uh i the closest i can think of is like nova from WGBH Boston in America, where it was just this, here's what's here's a bunch of new and interesting, here's things from the world of science. And uh, when he was talking about uh, getting the show made, he says in an interview with none other than the Christian Science Monitor, this is an article from 2006, um, he says uh, that the host criteria was the total opposite of a normal television host. We wanted someone who had a shop, Someone who could build anything we wanted, but we didn't want a scientist. And in his travels, he never forgot a number in a Rolodex because for Beyond Productions, they covered the exciting world of, uh, it wasn't called BattleBots at the time, it was called Robot Wars. And it was there that he met a uh, a mustachioed man in a beret. Named no, Jamie a goat, a goat with a mustache. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jamie Heineman grew up in Indiana and was a wild child who didn't love that he lived out in the middle of nowhere with no neighbors for miles. Heineman said, if I was mowing the lawn, I figured out that if I repeatedly ran the mower into the tree, that something would break and I would no longer have to mow the lawn because the lawnmower was broken. I was a problematic kid, to be sure. I left home when I was 14 and hitchhiked all over the country. He was, uh, well, yeah, when he left home, uh, he was gone for six months months uh, until he ended up in juvie in uh, California juvenile detention facility, at which point his parents went and picked him up and brought him back home. He has whatever his childhood was like, there is something very there's like a darkness there that uh, you rarely get a glimpse of, except uh, there's a few long form interviews online. But it basically boils down to he ran away from home, got caught in California. His parents brought him back and basically said, we understand you're going stir crazy. We wish you could stay and work on our family apple orchard, but apparently you're, that's not in the cards for you. We're going to take you to a six-week survivalist course in the wilderness, huh. and if you get through that, we're going to give you the keys to one of the cars, and like whatever your life is, that's your life. So that's where like his first taste for like... Uh, practicality and like uh, and and hacking things together. This kind of like wilderness guy that's part of the Jamie Heineman lore comes from. Shortly after that, uh, his mother, a librarian, died, 
and mm. uh, it left him with a small inheritance and he decided to buy a local pet shop. Mm. And he claims that it was that experience, the mundanity of small business ownership, of just working day in, day out, of like just having to tend to the eight individual, you know, got to feed the animals, got to scoop their shit, got to stock the shelves, got to bury the dead ones, got to talk to customers day in, day out, gave him this intense distaste for an average nine to five. Uh It was like at that moment that he was like, I don't want to do a traditional job. And he sought to find a way to kind of break out of that mold which led him to become a boat captain and dive master. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He did end up actually also going to uh, Indiana University and got a degree in Russian linguistics. That's key. That is also key. Yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it started just exactly, Jay, kind of going around doing different things. We've got the dive master. He was a concrete inspector, um, apparently a chef, a machinist, uh, animal wrangler, all these sorts of things before he eventually lands in a career in special effects. Oh, okay. So he talks about this also in one of his interviews where uh, he gets a taste for making things. He he understands that he wants to like create sculptures and machines and devices. And he literally sits himself down and asks like, what is the most commercially viable way for my work to be seen, engaged with, and sold? Because his uh, he has this deep like fear of being adrift. It's like a very, it's a very kind of like uh, I don't know if he's technically a boomer, but like this idea that you know if he fails, he has to go back to the orchard. He has to go back to the pet shop. Like, what is the most commercially viable way to engage with this desire? And he settles on special effects, and he goes to Colossal Pictures, which is this. Uh, San Francisco based uh, uh, kind of uh, production shop that mostly uh, that is kind of based in the counterculture of the uh, area. It's uh, one of their first jobs is to create the opening sequence for the Grateful Dead movie in 1977. Like it's kind of this uh, hippie dippier version of industrial light and magic, which is also kind of getting off the ground and he gets a start just mopping the floors and cleaning up. He just shows up day one and is like, I will do all the grunt work, all the bullshit that you don't want to do. And he says he did that specifically because that means he'll know where everything is. And that means he's indispensable. And he sticks with this company all through the seventies, eighties and nineties. And, um, Colossal pictures eventually hits hard times they lose uh, creative people in the dot-com boom to, uh, that they start their own internet production companies. Uh, the Colossal Pictures hits a massive loss when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame refused to pay bills for a bunch of uh, displays and films that they made for the museum. They file Chapter 11 bankruptcy and limps along until uh, Jamie Heineman, who was by then uh, had the role of manager of the model shop, Uh, bought the company from them and uh, turned it into what we know as M5 Industries. 
Yes, yes. Um, and it should be known, some of his credits are in films like Naked Lunch, Flubber. Uh, he did effects work on the Matrix trilogy. And uh, yes, uh, all of this kind of ru- running out of San Francisco. Cut to Adam Savage. Uh, grew up in New York and was really into acting as a kid. He got to voice animated characters for his dad, who did animation work for Sesame Street. So it was very early on he was getting work because of that. He also did like some commercials and stuff in his own right as well but he ends up falling out of acting at the end of his teens uh however as he uh quote had passed on that in favor of doing stuff with my hands this started out uh with his bike at a local bike shop uh, a local bike shop taught him how to take apart and put a bike back together and he was able to do it on his own pretty qu- quickly after that at age 18 savage also broke his neck in a swimming accident which he survived without any long-term consequences but uh, again i think fed into this um, whole thing about how he could, you know, take a knock on the head and keep moving. After school, Savage got into the film business wearing several hats, such as animator, graphic designer, carpenter, projectionist, film developer, and set designer, but started out as a model maker, eventually doing stuff on Galaxy Quest, The Mummy, and The Matrix Reloaded. He uh, essentially got a name for himself early on as this guy who could build odd props, stuff that no one else was making. Uh, he was great, again, working with his hands and thinking outside of the box. Uh, one, one thing that was cited was a remote control uh, recline. Uh, as, as an example of that. And Adam said... Jamie and I have known each other since about 1993 or 1994, and Jamie actually gave me my first job in the film industry, my first real job doing model making. I had spent about three years with him, cutting my teeth on commercials. We probably did about 120 commercials while I was working for him. And somewhere in the middle there, there, I helped him build a robot that became a very legendary robot in the original BattleBots, the precursor to Robot Wars. And this robot was called Blendo. The, uh, an Australian film crew sent out a team to interview us about Robot Wars and of course that is Peter Reese and crew. Blindo, let's talk about it. (laughs) BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Okay, so you might remember BattleBots. Uh, there's a t- there's a few typical designs for what a BattleBot is made of. The most popular one is usually like a wedge shape that can just flip over the competition. Some have like buzz saws like coming out the side. Uh, others have like striking little hammers on it. Some even have flamethrowers. What Jamie did with Blendo was that he took a lawnmower engine and attached it to a massive steel flywheel that barely hovered like less than a centimeter above the ground. So its center of gravity 
was extremely low and it was spinning this heavyweight at massive RPM. So anything that remotely touched this thing or one of its stubby little blades would just have all that energy transferred to it immediately and just get shattered. It was like it. they basically had to ban it after a while because it wasn't fun because it was like, all right, well, now it's time for the machine that shatters the other machines and risks the audience's health because it's going to send bits of gasoline and metal flying everywhere. Jamie Heidemann described it as, quote, a piece of steel the size of a fist traveling at the speed of sound. <laughs> and yeah, it was actually also it was withdrawn also because it was sending its opponents uh, pieces flying into the audience like shrapnel. Yeah. It was so powerful that <laughs> people were like, we can't. This is a danger. So they gave it like a special award because they were like the thing you built is so fucked that we're, we're we're scared of injuring the audience because it's so powerful this little machine another thing about early jamie and adam is uh that the actual name for m5 industries was supposedly coined by adam when it was time to rename the studio uh and he thought he was like trying to suggest the name of a british secret service industry uh you know agency uh, having misremembered that it's MI6, not M5. <laughs> but now if you go to the M5 Industries website, or at least at one point in 2000, the M5 stands for Models, Machines, Miniatures, Manufacturing, and yes, a little bit of magic. <laughs> Heinemann talks about that a lot of studios in the Bay Area closed a lot like how Colossal Pictures did. They would get a big commercial job or a big movie job kind of outspend itself or like kind of uh, get too big for its britches and collapse when times were leaner. And so M5 was kind of this smaller kind of deal. He ran the place very, uh, he, he did not like expand very often. He, it was the same shop the whole time. He worked with a lot of younger artists just getting into the industry that were less experienced, but he was willing to foster them. He was willing to take advantage of the creative community in San Francisco to help them. And even if they didn't have the most like a movie industry, he could like at least mold them and they would like learn to keep up a shop. Well, it was kind of this lovely uh, place with this stoic walrus man at the figurehead of it. <laughs> and so tons of people that in the effects industry made their way through M5 on their way to places like ILM or Pixar or Pacific digital so uh, it was kind of this fixture, this kind of under, not underground, but this kind of a clubhouse for the freaks and the misfits that would make their way into movie production. So this is kind of where we got to where we get to at the end of all of this uh, special effects work. Adam Savage said, the last place I worked in special effects was Industrial Light and Magic, George Lucas's studio. And getting up there in 1998 was like going to heaven. I mean, this was the best place I ever imagined working. And I had so much fun. But after about three years there, I started to get restless and to think about what's next. It's a function of working freelance for 15 years where you really never knew more than a couple of weeks in advance what the hell you're, you'd be doing. It's all what's next what's next what's next so a couple years later in 2002 peter reese is casting mythbusters and he recalls this interview he does with jamie heineman about blendo blindo jamie uh you know he reaches out to jamie to host this crazy show jamie doesn't feel he has was dynamic enough to host and uh, knew that he needed a counterpart and so that is how he ends up hitting up adam savage to join him and uh, savage said yes so the next step was for them to put together a demo reel savage said 
So the next morning, I went in with my DV camera and we borrowed another one and shot for two hours. I came home, cut together a 14-minute demo reel on my laptop, and it was basically all they said was, we're thinking about certain kinds of myths and we just want to get you guys on camera talking about a myth. And what I needed, uh, what I ended up cutting together is almost exactly what the show is. From the introductions where Jamie is the straight man and I'm kind of goofy to where I was like, you want to blow something up? And we got some fireworks and blew something up and we ran away while it burned something down and then we spent like six or seven minutes talking about the lawn chair Larry balloon myth and the people in Australia saw it and they called up and said we love this we're putting it forward to Discovery Channel we think you guys are the guys by the way side note lawn chair Larry refers to an incident in which a guy made a 45 minute flight in a patio chair with 45 helium filled weather balloons attached to it it is a myth they end up exploring on the actual show I think in the first few episodes so the first, even in that first, uh, like those pilot episodes that came out that they call the first season, like yes. Jamie Heineman is genuinely uncomfortable being on camera. He is stuttering. Uh-huh. He doesn't like look to, you know, d- at the camera. He uh, is visibly weirded out being on camera and having the practicality and foresight to be like, shit, this we like. I need just a razzle dazzle man and getting this hyperactive former child actor slash unicyclist magician guy that he used to work with to help him out really is like an amazing bit of uh, foresight that, you know, uh, changed the trajectory of both of their lives. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of amazing. Another thing to note about those first few episodes is just the fact that like no one knows who they are, so they're trying to like call up these specialists and stuff, and people are just aren't returning their phone calls. Adam Savage said, when we were first starting out, we would call up a scientist for help on some myth, and he would say, why would I want to help you with that? It's stupid. <laughs> and we would say, well, we know it's stupid, and you know it's stupid, but a lot of people think this is true, so help us prove it. And they'd be like, buzz off. And you actually see this happen in the first segment of the first episode with the Chevy Impala. They're trying to take a Chevy and see if it can be souped up to go 350 miles per hour like you might see in a movie. And they have a really tough time literally just getting someone to answer the phone when they call or call them back. And it's kind of hilarious. And so it's really fun to go back to those first episodes for how ragtag it truly is. And they don't make any bones about that either. They're like, we're a couple of crazy idiots. We're trying to do these things. No one's taking us seriously. We're just going to do it anyway. And, And then the people they do get to help them are all kind of like strange nomadic types that live out in the desert and also do weird stupid shit in their free time like blow things up and uh whatnot so while this is coming together a spunky redhead is throwing herself in the mix one that uh will have changed the the romantic trajectories of a thousand desperate nerds (laughs) carrie byron yes who uh is Lives kind of a life uh, that uh, is kind of, kind of filled with hardship. Her father was a California area uh, real estate agent who just had a horrible kind of boom and bust life where when he was selling properties, they would live in a nice big house. And when times were tough, they would her entire family would be forced to live in a single guest bedroom in a mutual friend's house. Her grandfather classically lost both of his hands in a machine thrashing incident, ended up getting them replaced with an axe and a gun, respectively, on the left and right hand because he was indeed pure evil. And he actually ended up being nicknamed the horror of, uh, I believe, uh, Kentucky. 
He was uh, was where he reigned. So this is from uh, her biography, <laughs> Crash Test Girl, that I listened to at double speed on Audible because I had a spare credit kicking around. But she leaves the single bedroom where she had to live with her parents as a teenager, tries to live out of her car for a couple of months, popping caffeine pills, working side jobs and trying to get through school. Her friend is like, this is insanely unsustainable. Uh, you just passed out at the wheel and crashed into a tree. Uh, come live with my family. We'll help you out. She does that, makes her way to, uh, through college, goes uh, on a finds herself across the world backpacking journey, you know, going to hostels, just doing her thing. And she ends up in the San Francisco area and really is directionless. She's doing office temp work. She's like uh, flipping uh, vintage fashion to secondhand shops. She like vaguely wants to have a career in art, but she doesn't know what she's doing. And all of a sudden she finds her calling, uh, something where her father's salesmanship and her natural God-given beauty gives her an advantage. And that is as a shot girl for uh, premium liquor brands in the San Francisco area. Of course. She has honed her craft of making, engaging with weird, sweaty nerds with too much money. (laughs) And she does get a degree from uh, San Francisco State University in film and sculpture, mm-hmm. for sure. And after that, she ends up spending a year backpacking, mostly in South Asia. Um, but uh, yeah, she somehow ends up oh, no, in I'm, Jamie's... I'm, I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying. She's, okay. she's a shot girl. She's making mad money. She got an offer to be a brand ambassador. But deep down, she's like, I want more. I want more. She uh, indulges a intense microfixation on sculpting. And uh, the teacher of a sculpting class she attends works for M5 Industries. On the same day that she gets an offer to become a globetrotting, highly paid brand ambassador for like, I don't know, let's just say Tanqueray or something. She walks up to Jamie Heineman and says, I don't have any experience with film. I don't have any experience with uh, practical effects. Here's my sculpture portfolio. Can I intern here? You don't have to pay me. Jamie, suppose, according to her, goes through her portfolio, doesn't look at it like silent, th- flipping through each page, grunts, eh, we could work with this on one sculpture and tells her to come in the next day. That next day is the first day of filming the pilots for Mythbusters. And she said, and it turns out my first day as an intern was the first day Mythbusters started filming there. They had a little project that they needed a girl for. He did this story called Airplane Toilet, where a larger woman was using an airplane toilet and flushed before standing up and got sucked into it. That's the myth, at least. They needed to make a mold of a behind for the experiment, and I just happened to let them volunteer mine. It was sort of a trade-off. They did a 3D scan of mine, and I was able to work on it on a computer sculpturing software so I could learn the program. I thought no one would see this because it was just a silly little cable show. Didn't know it would end up being the first thing you see when you Google my name six years later. <laughs> so. Another thing she does, which I, you know, this is one of those Wizard and the Bruiser hustle lessons, is when it was time to film the big finale Jado Rocket uh, Chevy sequence in the Mojave Desert, even though she's not on the call sheet, she, you know, she's just the intern at M5, uh, she drives overnight to the Mojave Desert to meet the film crew and help out with the production. 
She gets oh, wow. more screen time. The production company is like, hey, this feisty redhead's got, she's got something. Almost as if she understands how to engage with nerds. <laughs> and uh, when it, production in the first season and the second season really kind of highlight just how slow the production process is because it's Jamie and Adam hand building all of these rigs, doing all these tests and filming all the interstitials and the they just can't churn out episodes fast enough. Even even with these massive uh, builds taking, you know, they're doing them in like a five day, a week long like sprint. It's still not fast enough. That's when uh, Beyond Productions is like, you need a second team, the build team. And Carrie is called in to join them alongside two uh, builders from ILM that Adam knew, uh, Tori Belici and Granty Mahar. Yeah, Belici joined the show in 2003 behind the scenes. He ends up getting in front of the camera in 2004, uh, one season after Carrie. Uh, As a kid, his father showed him how to make a Molotov cocktail when he was a young boy, and he accidentally set the house on fire with a homemade flamethrower. Needless to say, he's always loved stuff that goes bang, and at the age of 19, he was almost arrested for setting off a homemade pipe bomb in his neighborhood of Seaside, California. And the police officer actually arrived on the scene and was like, uh, hey, um, maybe you should like put this passion into something more legal, like uh, special effects or something like that. So he heads to San Francisco State University's film school and uh, also ends up uh, at Jamie Heineman's M5 Industries at first as an errand boy and shop cleaner, but this changed pretty quickly and even landed work at ILM as well for eight years as a model builder, sculptor, and painter. So it made good friends along the way and that. Um, He worked on a lot of projects that we already talked about with Jamie and Adam, Matrix movies, things of that sort of around that time period. A lot of Star Wars prequels, uh, uh, credits for all these guys. And it was actually Tori Belici who, uh, is that what it is? Belici? Belici. Yeah, Tori Belici who uh, brought on fan favorite Grant Imahara who went also went to he went to the University of Southern California for electrical engineering and got his first work after college as an engineer on Lucasfilm's THX division and then of course ILM after that and uh, he worked there for 9 years again on a bunch of projects mentioned previously and stuff also like It was his responsibility to re-engineer R2D2 for the prequel movies. Like, yeah, he was a big R2D2 guy. That was like one of his huge huge thing projects that he worked on. Uh, he completed the build team, or the B team, as they also call it, for the show, joining in 2005 as a replacement for Scotty Chapman, who was on the show for just two seasons in 04 and 05, and was referred to as the Mistress of Metal. Of course, if you're familiar with the show, you may already know that uh, Grant did suffer an untimely death in 2020 at the age of 49. Carrie said... Grant left it all on the screen. He was a sweet, intelligent, cool guy. I think the one thing you didn't see is how hard he worked behind the scenes when the cameras were off and how much he really delighted in showing it to other people. Like kids would come to the visit the shop uh, and even though it'd be his lunch hour, he'd drop what he was doing and he'd be like, oh, check this out. Look at this. Cool, cool. He really was a teacher, and it showed him what he did, and he really loved kids, and he didn't get to complete his final project, which was creating the Baby Yoda animatronic that he was going to take to children's hospitals. I mean, he was doing that on his own time. This is the kind of thing that he did. Just seemed like such a sweet guy. I mean, he initially wanted to bring the freakish skeleton robot from the Craig Ferguson show, Jeff Peterson, to children's hospitals, but that was deemed (laughs) too traumatized. (laughs) 
speaking of untimely deaths, there was also Jesse Combs who joined the show for 12 episodes to replace Carrie Byron while she was on maternity leave. She was known as the fastest woman on four wheels and set a woman's land speed class record in 2013 and again in 2016. And she unfortunately ends up passing away after crashing a jet powered high speed race car back in 2019 at the age of 39. But all this to say, every single one of these people are fascinating before the show even starts, Mm -hmm. right? They're all, they all are like totally on, on a different lane than like any kind of normal Hollywood casting, I guess is what I'm getting at. It's important to note that none of these people are television presenters and none of them are even explicitly scientists. Even Carrie, like if you were to ask me, I'd be like, Oh, she was an actor slash Mm -hmm science person you know what i mean but like no even she was like i don't know what i'm want to get into in life i'm gonna i got you know got really into sculpture and and again special effects so yeah they're all like more effects people than they are and then just naturally seem to gravitate to the camera i mean they all like it's look the like fact they belong that they there didn't have it yeah it's you know the there was so right, much yeah. reality in the reality show there's a moment uh-huh. that i'm thinking of where uh, I believe it's the second or third season where they're testing whether or not uh, ancient uh, Mesopotamian batteries were discovered as a working technology on an archaeological site. So they created these like acid uh, metal clay jugs that they were going to see if you could get a voltage out of them. And as a prank, supposedly pushed by one of the producers who wanted to see more drama on screen, They made Adam touch a uh, prototype that was actually connected to power mains and not the, you know, the chemical batteries, giving him an insane electric shock. And his sense of hurt and anger at the production team and the guilt on the build team's face when they were like, you know, being like, uh, they uh, like they can't say the producer made us do it. So they're like, ha ha, funny prank. And he's like cursing it out. He's like running from the camera. Uh, You know, Tori constantly hurts himself. He's like Mm -hmm. doubling over on his bicycle, getting like caught in the nuts by uh, errant tow cables. Uh, Adam Savage famously burns off one of his eyebrows and in the immortal line, am I missing an eyebrow? I'm glad you brought up Jackass. I never didn't think of it like that. I mean, Tori's in Jackass forever. He's like an official Mm -hmm. member of the Jackass crew. He is absolutely the Johnny Knoxville of the Mythbusters team. Yeah, it makes so much sense looking back on it. You're like, right, that's again and again. The great thing about Jackass is what you were just saying about how like that's because they kind of weren't like these camera ready people initially um, is what makes it work so well. Just like Jackass makes you feel like you're just hanging out with your friends. You kind of get the same effect with them. And it's just that perfect little, they just, they entered right in that perfect sw- sweet spot of reality TV to, to do this thing. And then, you know, as um, Carrie puts it, um, she, what did she say? April, I swear to God, you better delete all this dead air and make us look really great, like like handsome and smart. I want us to sound handsome. I was having so much fun, and the audience was along for the ride. 
I like to think of Mythbusters like the cheese sauce on broccoli. It tastes so good that you didn't realize you were eating vegetables. So you're like getting the jackass thing, but you're also learning shit in this <laughs> like really, really fun way, which again is just what made it so, so great and so exciting. So of course you just mentioned it. We'll get, let's get more into it now. Due to the nature of the show, there were a few instances of mishaps and moments of danger. Uh, one legendary incident was talked about by Adam Savage at a comic-con when asked about the biggest behind-the-scenes disaster the show ever had savage spoke about the show tackling it quote an easily available material and its supposed explosive properties apparently what they discovered was so explosive that they actually destroyed the footage that they got and made everyone promise never to speak of it again and eventually uh savage contacted the defense advanced research projects agency aka darpa to let them know about their findings because they were asking about like anybody having any findings about homemade bombs and stuff. I guess this thing was just so easy to create and was so dangerous that they had to get rid of it. And of course, there uh, is the cannonball incident. Uh, The cannonball that was uh, fired into an occupied home. The team were testing out homemade cannons when one, according to Discovery made, quote, an unforeseen bounce, end quote, and blasted through a cinder block wall, through someone's front yard, up their stairs, through their bedroom, which they which they were in at the time, and out the back of the house. It managed to hit the top of another home before finally smashing into a parked minivan, which is where it, <laughs> it lay, uh, which is totally crazy. <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The cast in the uh, final reunion episode, because at one point in the later seasons after contract renegotiations, they actually got rid of the Bill team and uh, they brought him back for the finale, uh, talked about just the sheer terror in their eyes as like, you know, they were shooting cannonballs all day doing tests for this thing. It always landed into the side of the hill that they were firing into thanks to the uh, water barrels and everything that they had to catch them. One like kind of flew away and they're like, ah, weird. And then county sheriff like uh, cars started piling up and they're like, hey, are you shooting cannonballs? And then news helicopters started circling the shoot. And they're like, oh, my God, did we kill somebody? 
oh God, we killed somebody. Oh no. They almost did. Person was in the bedroom. <laughs> Adam Savage and Carrie Byron had to give a talk at a local high school to <laughs> uh, t- talk about safety and to repair relationship with the communities. <laughs> oh my God. Before that, in 2009, they were experimenting with an explosion in Esparto, California to see if they could literally knock the socks off of a mannequin and it went a little overboard to the point that the explosion shattered a nearby resident's window and knocked said resident off her couch. It's a lot of fun. So another just crazy incident. Um, you already mentioned Terry Bellici being hit in the groin. It's happened several times. A goat kicked him in the nuts. Uh, there was a magnet on a kite. There was also a martial arts kick. Bellici said, if I had a nickel for every time I got hit in the testicles on this show, I could retire. I hope I could still have kids. <laughs> They're like a magnet to flying things. Uh, his nuts, that is. When asked about the most common onset injuries, uh, Heinemann actually said that of all things, the ubiquitous plexiglass blast shields that are always present whenever they do any sort of dangerous experiment. Uh, The way that the hinges are designed, multiple crew members, including Adam Savage, have broken their fingers, getting it caught in between the individual panels that weigh hundreds of pounds apiece. Adam Savage was actually asked about his the most scariest moment he had on the show, and he said that that was definitely standing on the deck of the Mythtanic. Savage said, we were testing the myth of will you get sucked down by a boat if it sinks? And the biggest boat we could get a hold of was this steel-hulled tugboat that weighed about 30,000 pounds. And we welded it up and put it in a valve in the base of it that would let water in and started letting it fill up. And I stood on the deck with no protective gear, but a wetsuit, and I was uh, had a weight belt on to make sure to account for my positive buoyancy. And we didn't know what was going to happen. We were in San Francisco Bay. It was like 55 degree water. It was 75 feet deep where we were. And Jamie is pretty much right next to me. He's a master diver. And we also had a secondary master diver who's a paramedic and a salvage specialist. And we had no idea what was going to happen. But when you're standing on something that big and it starts to move in a way you've never felt something like that move, i.e. it starts to roll, your body really knows that something is dreadfully wrong. We had to do it twice because (laughs) the first time I jumped right off, I was like, screw this. I don't think I really participated in that decision. My body was just like, time to go. And the second time we did it, I felt a little more confident, but still I didn't know if I was going to be dragged down 60 feet or something like that. It was terrifying. So I still have to say that was uh, just about the highest on the Brown Pants Index. That's our index that we call it at Mythbusters. The bra- I love the Brown Pants Index. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, it's that. Th- there's so many weird little things that made the show bigger than the sum of its parts. The the real danger that you felt the hosts were in. The fact that like uh, for a lot of these myths, their builds didn't work as planned. A lot of times they just sometimes, especially in the early seasons. You know, they're on a time crunch. They got to move on to the next uh, myth. They would just fail and just be like, we fucked this up. We'll try and do it over again later, which they would do on kind of um, myth takes episodes where they would redo things that they had failed in the past. Uh, And conversely, the thrill in the team's eyes when something actually works like they want it to, Mm -hmm. the actual celebration, you feel it with them because you're on the ground with them as they sweat and toil to build these things that, you know, you see them, most of the show is them just like muttering over a workbench trying to get these things to work. Another great thing is that early on, they realized that even if the myth itself doesn't pan out, 
you should still give people what they want to see, where if something is supposedly explosive and it turns out that's just an urban legend, they would just go ahead and fill the thing with actual explosives and in beautiful slow motion footage, blow the thing up anyway, (laughs) thus giving that kind of ecstatic release. And again, this is pre-science YouTube. This is pre, there's so many things that, uh, you know, nowadays, high frame rate footage of a thing going uh, in slow motion exploding, a million YouTube channels, a million infotainment shows, but Mythbusters really captured that like exotic thrill that modern film technology could capture for a lot of people. That's the big trick with them, I think, was that in general, it would be like, hey, let's test this thing out. And oftentimes it's like, obviously this isn't going to work. And then it'd be like, wah, wah, it doesn't work. It's like, all right, well, now we're just going to, covered in dynamite <laughs> you're like all right <laughs> like they had an, a, an understanding of like heightening the situation to make it more and more interesting so even like the lamest of uh, and most obvious myths would they'd find some place to push it to to make for really fun interesting television and totally jake that like a big draw is them seeing that live and experiencing that in the moment and seeing genuine excitement from them uh, that was not at all put on in any way because they were, I think that that's what's so great about them and what, you know, I think a lot of people are drawn to and what we forget to be sometimes as human beings, there's just endless curiosity. And like, that's so, so important to continue to maintain within yourself. And, and they're in, they're just always showing you that on the show, that it's great to be curious in these ways. One of the things we mentioned putting putting on something, and that is the relationship between Adam and Jamie, where uh, when Mythbusters was finally off the air, uh, people were like, oh my God, the band's breaking up. Oh my God, do Adam and Jamie, are they like not getting along well? The thing is, they didn't get along from the beginning. Uh, the same <laughs> Christian Science Monitor article from 2006 Uh, just flat out says that these are two extremely opposite people. Um, Peter Reese, the, uh, Peter Reese. Yeah. Peter Reese, the original creator of the show who developed it, uh, says, uh, they're the Oscar and Felix of myth busting. Reese says the two are diametrically opposed in every aspect of their lives. Jamie is all about total, complete and utter control, uh, thinking first and then acting. Adam is about acting first and then thinking. Uh, without prodding, Heinemann says, I wouldn't spend five minutes with Adam outside work if I didn't have to. <laughs> yeah. Followed by, but yet I feel somewhat displaced without him in the workplace, destroying my tools and leaving messes everywhere he goes. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, do you have more? No. Uh, just the fact that like they were coworkers, they, you know, understood. Yeah, they that were coworkers through and through. Yeah. They appeared often in, uh, you know, they'd make appearances for various uh, TED Talks, corporate events, guest roles on TV shows. Like they were a duo in the eyes of the public, but they never engaged with each other when off the clock. It should also be noted that Jamie is also not hanging out with a lot of people. He, he's very, he's a very private person. He said, said like, just so you know, like at all times, I'd rather be sitting in a dark room, <laughs> like thinking about shit, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to interacting with people. So it's not necessarily like, like he is it, it fundamentally is not. In fact, it's kind of a miracle. He made it so long on the show that they went all the way to what? 2016 mm-hmm. from 2003. He, um, you know, one, 
definite fact that Carrie has talked about and others is that you know the don't do not expect a MythBusters reunion on like uh much of a yeah like at all mm-hmm. it's it's not gonna happen or at least don't expect the show to come back with the original cast minus obviously Imahara because Jamie is totally done with television and, and just as a whole and and I believe and some and I believe Carrie mentioned that he now works in like think tanks and oh, that's the yes, kind of thing he's absolutely. really into for a hot second after the show Adam and Jamie were involved in the YouTube channel and website called tested uh Jamie quickly left and it's basically become the Adam Savage show on that YouTube channel for a while he has tons of science videos tons of Q&A sessions uh, cosplay videos like it's his own little nerd playground and Jamie quickly left um, Jamie yeah works for like the defense industry he has mentioned that he has like innovative drone designs he has an idea for a autonomous tank filled with water that can like be sent into burning forests and like keep firefighters out of danger like he is overjoyed just t- you know engineering and tinkering and building still in his M5 uh, offices. So like Adam's happy. Jamie's happy. It's we don't need we really don't need a reunion. Like there is hundreds of hours of television of these two people blowing stuff up in a formal setting. I don't I don't begrudge it. And the fact that there was never really a true falling out like from the beginning all the way back in 2006, they just have it all out on the table that, like, we are co-hosts, not, like, buddies. Right. And that's totally fine. I, I totally get that. Uh, and, yeah, they definitely, apparently, they argued a lot on and off screen. Um, one fundamental uh, thing that they agreed on was the ethics of the show. They would never do a sponsored myth. They would never allow for anything like that to happen, for there to be any kind of, uh, you know sellout situation. I mean, like they would that. do corporate appearances for like uh Corning and Intel. Like they they got their mm-hmm. they got their bag. They got their nut, but yeah, the one thing they didn't bring it into the show in that way, which I thought was kind of cool that they said that, that at least that's what Adam Savage said was like their one fundamental thing that they always agreed on. Either Adam or Jamie said that. But that's another cool. thing that I admire the show for was uh an early disregard for like what they called oogie boogie myths. Kind of anything having mm. to do with new age mysticism or magic or ghosts or telepathy in a lot of ways. They experimented a little bit with it. They mentioned the uh, in the early seasons, they did a, one about pyramid power and whether putting things under supposedly magical pyramids that they bought off the internet could like help preserve food or induce positive energy. But apparently Adam, Adam, that's like the one he regrets doing. Yeah. Too. There was another one where they tested free energy devices uh-huh. and uh, him and Jamie, especially I think also part of this like 2000s uh, new atheism wave was like, no, magic is not real. We're not testing magic. <laughs> we can't get into all that. Yeah. But what they did test was pretty great. Let's talk about some uh, particularly enjoyable episodes. Uh, there's way too many to count. It's the kind of show you literally just throw it on and let it run for hours and hours and hours. Like I said, it's almost 300 episodes worth of material. It's kind of ridiculous. But uh, if you want to maybe get a little starter going, I've got a few suggestions for you. First of all, there's Alcatraz Escape, Season 2, Episode 8. The team recreates the incredible escape 
Escape from Alcatraz, performed by Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers, including using an inflatable raft made from rubber raincoats that was used across the San Francisco Bay at night. They waited until nightfall. They actually do it. It's kind of incredible to see. Uh, MacGyver, MacGyver Myths, Season 5, Episode 31, a great example of the team taking on TV myths. These are all, of course, pertaining to the show MacGyver, which is, uh, if you don't know, it's an old action show where the star can get out of any situation using whatever is around him at the time. Uh, there is, uh, for you nerd, 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 nerds out there, there's the Star Wars special, Season 12, Episode 1. I think it's, this is especially cool because of all of their uh, lineage you know, coming from Industrial Light and Magic to work on the show. They ended up getting like really great access mm-hmm. to the whole IP and were able to test out a bunch of fun stuff like whether the Ewoks could have taken down those chicken walkers on indoor or how easy it would be to actually dodge a stormtrooper blaster fire um, and myth busted. It would actually be very hard to dodge those blasters. You would probably actually all those people would actually probably die at those in those different scenes in those movies. One that I really appreciated was from 2008 where they tested uh, the NASA moon landing and went kind of point by point yes. on key uh, moon landing conspiracy theories and points of conspiracy evidence and debunk them kind of one by one, which I found like kind of refreshing and practical. Uh, Another one, episode 33 from 2005, where they went through uh, the supposed advice for if your plane is going to crash, what's the best position to sit in to like survive the crash? And they uh, busted it, saying that uh, there is a tiny grain of truth that like tucking your hand, your head into your lap and just like bracing Maybe, just maybe, we'll leave you with a broken neck and shattered bones and you might live, maybe depending on where you're sitting in the cabin. But otherwise, if your plane is crashing, there's no like hacks to get out of uh, being severely injured. For some car stuff, speed cameras. This season five, episode four is a great one concerning fast cars, testing out things about speed cameras, but also just a great episode for gearheads to like watch people driving real, real fast. And another good car one is season 12, episode 12 called Road Rage, and it recreates a bunch of action film stunts using cars. So there's, and I feel like they did so many of that stuff, like out in the desert, giant vehicles exploding, doing wild stuff with various modes of transportation was a Mythbusters classic. One I think about all the time was 2010's Flu Fiction, in which uh, Adam was uh, wearing a rig that had fluorescent dye dripping uh, near his nose, and he would touch his nose and touch things around him, shake people's hands. And at the end of the experiment, where he hosted a fake dinner party, they turned on a black light, and the entire room was just glowing green. To just showcase how much like germs can travel if you're not being careful, not washing your hands and just like touching shit, which in these days, <laughs> I boo, I think about <laughs> it a lot. Yeah. So the original team did the show up through 2016 before they stepped away and were replaced by hosts John Lung and Brian Loudon for two seasons with the show finally coming to a close in 2018. They were chosen uh, uh, via a reality competition show called Mythbusters The Search, where they had a competition 
competition. They'd be given different myths to bust. These different teams and whoever performed that the best would get to stay on. And, you know, they were narrowed down to two. In 2018, Adam Savage returned to host a new spinoff called Mythbusters Jr., which ran for a season and had Savage leading a team of children and testing out different myths. I watched one episode and it made me sad because half of it was them just showing footage from old Mythbusters episodes. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, the as we said, the possibility of a true t- return to form is probably is almost definitely not going to happen. But you do have that white rabbit. Uh, what was it? The white rabbit project. project. Yeah, you have that. You have various things. Carrie even says that she still works with uh, Bellucci and they like continue to pitch Mythbusters adjacent type shows. So I think we will get more of them in our future for sure, as they're still working in the industry. And Adam Savage is still working on stuff as well. Jamie, I think, is done for goodsies in terms of TV, but you never know. Jamie's like uh, on a helicopter above Libya right now, like building a <laughs> fucking cyborg robot. He's doing wet work shit, man. I have one more final quote from Carrie, but do you have anything else you wanted to talk about before we close this puppy up? Any more Jake fast factoids, lightning uh, Jake round of insane, intense fact emotions. That's what I call it. Fun fact, this show was a great comfort to me during a very dark period in my life. The just reliability of it, the friendliness of the hosts, and the, uh, I would say now, hopeful belief in the power of human ingenuity Mm. and reason in the face of darkness was uh, very nice, and I miss... I, I miss that feeling. Funny, mine was Trailer Park Boys, much more nihilistic approach to the dark time, but it, it got me through for sure. Just chain smoking in my bed, <laughs> watching Trailer Park Boys drinking Bud Lights, my friend. That is uh that was my that was a summer. All right, well, here's a little final quote from Carrie before we wrap things up. Uh, Carrie said, Mythbusters was an incredible opportunity, but a lot of it was right time, right place, hard work, and the fact that we were starting out this reality show during the Wild West of reality. We were lucky enough not to be drowned out by a gazillion stations and the internet. We had a bigger audience because there was less to watch. We got to throw up in... uh, we got to grow up into the show. I mean, they also that we did were. throw up. There were they a also lot did of throw up vomiting quite a bit. Myths. Now I think it's a lot harder for people to get to that point. So I'm going to say I was lucky to be in the era that I was in, and I count my blessings for it. I got amazing opportunities, and I still continue to get to meet the most interesting people in the world. Uh, also, Carrie Bryan's uh, Byron's grandfather, the um, axe-handed, gun-handed mm-hmm. uh, maniac, had this to say. <laughs> I'll kill them all. Uh, which I thought was interesting. I will. I will mention too. We went and watched one of the like first episodes of MythBusters, and it was kind of amazing to see just how of its time it was as a reality show. Like it reminded me the editing of mm-hmm. it and uh, the look of it reminded me of like Road Rules. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's interesting, I think, to watch that show evolve over time as reality evolved. And I never thought of it as much of a reality show, but you actually do see it change as that whole genre changed. And it kind of started as the in the earliest phases of that genre. I mean, it should be noted that like shows like Mythbusters and Dirty Jobs and I'm missing a ton of other major hits kind of boosted the Discovery Channel into its like insane heights where the point is now it's like this massive player, you know, it's got, it's now part of Warner brothers discovery, uh, you know, part of this massive 
uh, media engine that contains HBO and CNN and Cartoon Network and all these other things. Uh, there was a massive announcement where it's probably going to get folded into HBO Max. Like, without Mythbusters, like, the entire fortunes of the Discovery Channel really was on thin ice back in the early 2000s, and they kind of turned it around. Mm-hmm. So it's it's still felt to this day. Hell yeah. So the next time you watch someone on YouTube uh, film themselves dumping uh, lithium batteries into a bucket of salt water and filming the explosion, thank Mythbusters. Uh, Yes. And of course, you've always wondered if a man with a gun for a hand and an axe for a hand could murder an entire town in Kentucky. Myth uh, not busted. He did it. He killed them all. It's plausible. There's no... I'm coming for you, Jake. Hope you don't scream too loud. Can I get your granddaughter's phone number before you kill me? <laughs> nope. Go, 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 go. Uh, that's the sound of him killing Jake. Anyways, thank you so much for listening to our Mythbusters episode and for all your support. If you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew is the place to be. $5 a month. You get bonus weekly episodes from Jake and I talk about the stuff we're currently watching and playing, talk about the news, talk about different years and media and breaking all that down. It's a lot of fun. Uh, for $15, you can join us on our Sunday study group. This last Sunday, we uh, on Discord, we got together and watched a few Mythbusters episodes, and it was super, super fun. It was just such a nice hang. I loved it. It was the, the Mythbusters, the perfect Sunday afternoon the thing. I mean, it from just really the is. Discord chat, as a collective, when we realized that you could turn a gun barrel around 180 degrees like Bugs yes. Bunny, and it would turn around. And it would cleanly shoot you in the face. That blew me away. <laughs> that was so crazy. Uh, anyways, check us out on there. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Check me out on Twitch. Twitch.tv forward slash Holtonators Ho. Monday, Tuesday, Friday streams. It is a blast. And I love having whizbrew folks every time. Literally every stream I do, it seems that lately I have at least one or two people come on for the first time and say, what's up? Just listen to the Blockbuster episode. Uh, it's very cool to see you playing some games and hanging out. And uh, it's great to see you uh, there in chat. So thank you so much. Twitch.tv forward slash hold to nature's hoe. Jake. Uh, hey, I stream too. I do a VTuber channel. It's uh, twitch.tv slash puppet Jared or youtube.com slash puppet Jared. Whatever your flavor, whatever app is on your TV, just uh, check it out. Uh, the flagship stream is uh, Cartoon Dumpster Thursdays, where we watch the weirdest cartoons from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and we have ourselves a blast. Likewise, it is very fun when a Whisper listener pops in and says, hey, I heard you pitch this for a year straight, and I finally got off my ass and watched, and I'm having the time of my life. I'm doing great. I'm feeling better. My wife loves me again. God, this stream is so entertaining. I don't know about that promo, but uh, I guess we'll give it a go. (laughs) But check out Bubba Jared, everybody. And hey, always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. 
It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.